Welcome to the Truth to Power show in Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and uh, we have a special guest today. With us today is Diana Groover. Uh, she wrote an MA from Gordon uh, Conwell. She writes about disciplineship and uh, spiritual formation in the everyday. She serves as a writer and communications director of the Vere Institute and lives in Pennsylvania with her husband and daughter. She wrote the book Companions in the Darkness, Seven States, Seven Saints Who Struggled with Depression and Doubt. Uh, that's the, mainly the focus of this today's talk. So we we'll talked a little bit about that. So um, welcome, Diana. Thanks. It's so good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, mm -hmm. So we'll start off with Companions in the Darkness and uh, tell us a little bit about kind of the evolution of this work, how it kind of came to be, and uh, a little bit of the writing of it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So as you mentioned, the book is about seven different individuals from church history who struggled with depression, which I know is a bit of an unusual topic. Um, I don't think there's many people who have written about that angle exactly. For me, it was very personal at the beginning. I, I've personally struggled with depression myself. And when I first struggled with depression, I had not heard the stories that I include in this book. And I think there's something about depression that feels really isolating and you can feel a sense of personal failure, perhaps, like maybe you're not doing something right or if you just tried harder, it would go away. So whenever I started noticing some of these stories of some of these people who we might consider heroes who struggled with depression, much like I had. I couldn't help but wonder why I hadn't heard their stories. And I think it communicates something when we don't tell stories like that. Um, not only do we lose out on the wisdom these people have to offer us, but it also communicates to some extent that maybe there's stories that shouldn't be told. Um, so as they started to, to pop up in my own studies, I, I just, it really piqued my curiosity. And so I started researching them more and um, really gleaned a lot of wisdom personally that they had to share and eventually that turned into companions in the darkness thank you thank you so um, how did you select the people the individuals that were spotlighted in the book uh, I guess you were reading over many different that probably there are many um, stories out there that uh, had similar elements but you had to select and kind of focus in on I believe it was seven so how many how, how did you do that selection process yeah yeah, there's a challenge when you're studying history uh, of the voices that are preserved and the voices that are preserved thoroughly. So that's definitely tricky. There are other people that we know that study that uh, suffered from depression, but some of them there's just not enough information to write about extensively beyond just a sentence that says this person struggled with depression. So I was looking for ones who were spread out throughout history who had enough evidence from their own personal stories that they definitely struggled with something akin to what we call depression today, and that there was enough material there to write a substantial chapter about them. So that narrowed the, the pickings pretty well, and then trying to separate them over time periods um, helped to kind of winnow the group down to those seven. Yeah, yeah. So uh, as you're writing the stories, uh, what surprised you about like, was there anything that really was like, wow, exclamation point that really surprised you about their journey? One of the themes that popped up that I just think is really, really interesting is the fact that most of them had an incredible sense of humor. 
which for people who are depressed is a, is a bit surprising um, that, that so many of them would have that as a part of their personality, but they did. Um, I think personally, I, my personal opinion is that's part of what helped them survive. The fact that even in really dark days and, and deep seasons of struggle, um, they found something somehow to, to laugh about. Um, but yeah, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr., Charles Spurgeon, a, a lot of these folks, they just, yeah, they knew how to laugh. Yeah, yeah. And also it's like, um, you know, I would say that uh, trying to find the, the like, w w like the kind of humor in the struggle and also the, the humor and the, the contrast between the public perception and what their internal experience is probably right. was a lot of the humor, like trying to, you know, kind of get that wisdom in there as well. You know, like, you know, I think a lot of times people listen when they when they they're able to laugh about things, they're able to really hear <laughs> They'd be here more, you know, they're able to hear the, the truth in there. Yeah. Um, so now uh, some of the questions I had here, like we talked a little bit about your own experiences and in the book it's really, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, embedded in there. It's kind of like, you know, kind of references, not just there, but also your, your, your personal connections with the each of these subjects uh, and how you kind of find insight or find their insight helpful to yourself as well. And um, so why don't we why don't we listen a little bit to a passage to start us off? Actually, why don't we start off with the passage uh, in the beginning and then you can select a passage and we can discuss a little bit of the passage. Yeah, that might be good. So okay. tell us a little bit of what your selection process is and then we can. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Since we um, since I mentioned Martin Luther King Jr., maybe I'll read a little bit from his story. Sure, sure. So uh, one of the, for each of the individuals in the book, I tell the, the story of their own experience with depression. And then I also pull out a major theme of the advice they might offer to someone today about how to survive in the midst of depression. And so for Dr. King, I was thinking a lot about the resilience that he had. And there were three major themes of resilience I noticed in his story. One was his humor, which I've already mentioned. One was uh, his spirituality, his sense of faith. And the other was the power of song. So I'll read a little bit about that. Martin Luther King Jr. came from a heritage rich in music. The spirituals and gospel songs that he so often repeated and sang with his fellow civil rights laborers encouraged him as they had the slaves who were his ancestors. The lyrics gave King and those within the black community and beyond a language of hope. Not a spurious hope, blind to life's sorrows, but a hope that could stare down the horrors of hell itself and not give way. It was a hope grounded in God's power and justice and liberation and his presence with the oppressed. It was a hope that knew God could make a way out of no way. The songs sung by the determined voices of civil rights workers and the haunting voices of gospel singers like King's friend Mahalia Jackson wove a soundtrack around the civil rights movement. They provided a reservoir of hope from which King could draw deeply when he was discouraged, frightened, or depressed. He pointed others to this reservoir as well, turning to the language of the spirituals in his sermons. 
Once, when King and his colleagues were working in Mississippi, he was exhausted and depressed. No matter what his friends and aides tried, they could not get him out of bed. Andrew Young went to find Joan Baez, a folk singer and close friend of King's, and begged her to come sing for him. Baez agreed, pushing through the anxious onlookers at the minister's home where King was staying and entering his room. And then she began to sing. I'm a poor pilgrim of sorrow. I'm traveling this wide world alone. I have no hope for tomorrow. I'm trying to make heaven my home. Sometimes I'm tossed and driven. Sometimes I don't know where to roam. But I've heard of a city called heaven, and I'm trying to make it my home. She continued on singing the verses of the old gospel song she'd learned from a woman at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham only a few years before. It was a community that knew the taste of sorrow, as it had lost the lives of four precious little girls in a bombing during the civil rights struggle there. The words floated around the room in Baez's unaccompanied soprano voice. By the second or third verse, King began to smile faintly. When she finished, he got up, completed his personal grooming routine, and went off to do his business. It was the song's medicine that reached him when nothing else could. It was the song that got him out of bed. So beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that also with music and such and uh, talking a little bit about music and the, and the role of music in the church history and um, and, uh, and the different uh, threads of, of Christianity, um, how kind of music is supposed to be like healing and, and how it can be healing, how it is healing, how uh, also how we kind of express God's love through the music. So tell us a little bit about what you're Talk a little bit about your impressions of like music in your own life and and the different characters in the book um, and how that kind of infuses and in, in also Christian theology. Yeah, yeah. There's something so powerful about singing, I think, and I, it's something that I'm sure there's people who have done research into this, but in my own experience, it goes beyond logic. There's yeah. something about a song that can reach deeper parts in my soul. And in my brain, um, when just repeating words or reading something can't. Mm. And, and I think I think many of us have that experience um, of just knowing the power of a song reaching us when we really need to be reached or encouraging us or speaking to us when we really need a connection of some sort. Um, so for King, there's, there's multiple stories and, and you see it in the way that he preached and and the way that he ministered to other people, the the power of these songs of repeating truths back to ourselves and finding them sink deeper and deeper because of the power of music. Um, Another individual in the book, William Cooper, was a hymn writer. And there are some of his hymns that, that we still sing today. And to think that there are words of songs that we sing that bring us encouragement that came from the pen of a, a man who was deeply depressed and was using that art to help him process through his own struggle, I think is really beautiful. Um, how his pain gave birth to his poetry and his hymns and now in turn can encourage me today. Mm, yeah, and in my own experience, it's like even in other traditions, 
you know, we have in, in, in the Indian tradition, the Hindu tradition, we have something called bhajans, which are devotional songs where people will sing them. And similar to, you know, in church, how you have call and response and, and many different traditions have that where the singer will sing and then the, the audience will respond. And that kind of builds a sense of community uh, where you have like uh, the whole community engaged in the song. So it's not just the singer singing, but also uh, um you know, the singer sings and then the response to the call and response kind of aspect to it and uh, and how that kind of develops kind of love, loving feeling towards the mm -hmm. deity, towards the God uh, and how that can help uh, kind of. But at the same time, we, we think about God's love and we think about the love of God and how um, many people seem to have the opinion or the strict opinion that, oh, you know, that should melt away depression. But at the same time, mm -hmm. you know, it's like depression is, is sometimes the, it, like I think one of the metaphors used in the book is uh, it's it shades the lens through which we see God, the lens through which we're yeah. perceiving God. Um, so that that is something that I think is interesting, insightful into our relationship because it's like you know there's uh, kind of the way in which it taints. Uh, so you could talk a little bit about that and about how you know common perceptions and how you were able to dispel them, or and maybe even perceptions that you had previously that were able to be dispelled by your research yeah 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 as i mentioned i think in the culture at large i think it's it's really easy to fall into a sense that um maybe depression is a sign of personal failure if, mm. if we were trying harder it could go away um and in my own tradition in the christian tradition sadly that has sometimes been spiritualized that's not always been the case but i, I know that too many people have have had that experience um you know if, if we just had more faith or if we just prayed more or somehow find a way to choose joy that depression would go away and i think the stories in this book really push back against that because each of these these seven companions um are deeply respected for their faith, and yet they really struggled with depression. Um, but to, to your point, I think depression um, makes us feel isolated. There's kind of this fog that surrounds you when you're depressed, and you lose that sense of connection with other people. And if that's the case for people that I can physically see with my eyes and maybe touch with my hands or hear with my ears, why would I not expect that to also happen to God who I can't touch tangibly in those same ways? I think thinking about it like that begins to unravel this, this stigma that comes with it, that, that somehow God should be in a different category and I should continue to feel this deep emotional connection in a way that I don't to anything else. Um, depression touches every part of our lives. It touches our our relationships, our ability to work, and it affects our spiritual lives as well. And that doesn't mean we're doing something wrong. Um, it doesn't mean if we could just find this perfect silver bullet cure, it would all go away. Um, it, it just means it's it's part of the struggle. It's part of the battle. And I, I personally have found a, a lot of encouragement from the individuals I studied in this book. Number one, knowing that these things just happen and they've happened to people whose stories we're still telling centuries after their death. And number two, there, there's a way to survive it. There's a, a path through that darkness to keep waking up every day and keep breathing and, and waiting for the light to come again. Yeah. 
thank you thank you and uh in your own experience can you tell us a little bit of the songs that what are some songs you really remember that really connected with you or sometimes the spirituals that really connected with you that helped you along the way yeah can you mention a few of them yeah one song that i think of in particular that i can remember standing in in my church uh, fighting back tears is a, a song called we will feast in the house of zion um in the christian tradition one of the the big anchoring points of hope that we that we believe in is that god is intent on redeeming everything including creation and there will come a day when there will be no more sickness and no more pain and no more sorrow and all of these things like depression or pandemics or broken relationships that we suffer from today will be no more. And that song really speaks about that. It says, we will feast in the house of Zion and we will weep no more. And when you're in a season of life where you're spending much too much time weeping and, and that hope seems dim to sing those songs, like you said, hearing other people around you singing them as well, even when you have trouble believing that there are other people around you who, who can believe with you. Um, that really spoke to me during that season. Thank you. Thank you. And I just want to comment that, yeah, it's definitely like um, uh, ambition of many different religious traditions to eliminate suffering, even in Buddhism too. It's like, you know, the ambition is to eliminate suffering and to reach us to a point where we've reached, you know, higher states of consciousness where we're really kind of like, you know, imbibed with wisdom, we're kind of, you know, past um, the point of suffering. But I, I do see a little bit of some lessons being learned in kind of in our suffering and with our suffering. Perhaps it's because we're human, because we're still kind of in that realm of like, you know, and maybe for someone who's like past that, it's a different experience. But uh, I think there's definitely a richness in in crying and there's definitely a richness that's gained in, in kind of these states of mind. Although we don't want to kind of we want to have the right um alignment so that then it's not overwhelming us but um kind of the richest that can that can come from uh and kind of enhance you know the times when we're having you know we're having positive feelings and all that kind of thing yeah but at the same time it's like the balance is important i think would you agree or what is really the uh you know is it really the objective just to like purge yourselves these states I don't know, <laughs> like, I don't know. So what are your thoughts on that I um I mean I think that suffering is a part of the human condition yeah exactly. and yeah. I think that in I'll just speak from my own faith tradition something that's given me a lot of hope is the thought of a God who comes close to me in the midst of suffering mm. um and I think it I think that, yeah, whenever we're in this existence, suffering is a part of it. And so the question is not always, is there some way to magically remove this? It's more, how do I keep walking through it in the midst of it? Um, what does choosing life or continuing to live in the midst of pain look like? And I, I think that there's a lot of hope in that place. I think that walking through a season of suffering um, gives us a lot of wisdom mm -hmm. and, and can help uh, shape us into being better able to help other people. I, I think that's one of the interesting things about this book and just my own experience that drove me to write it is it's these people's pain, it's my own pain that 
generated this book that I really pray is, is a source of hope and comfort for others. But I think there's something about walking through pain that, that uniquely shapes us to be able to touch the lives of other people in ways that we might not be able to if, if we hadn't walked through those things. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that uh, for the for the for most of us, you know, we experience that and we kind of are able to see the glimmers of the sun and remember that, you know, through the rain, you know, that we have that constant uh, you know, connection with the source, the source power and source and remind reminding ourselves of that kind of uh, helps us through this. Um, but also I want to talk a little bit about some some of the literature and uh, pieces of work that uh, influence you in, in as a writer um, so tell us a little bit about some of the the poems or the or the um, uh, other works that other uh, written works that have influenced you as a writer and we can go from there yeah thank you one that I think of is the poet T.S. Eliot um, he wrote this grand opus the the four quartets which if people have not read, I encourage you to. There's one section in that that I come back to a lot when I'm writing. So I think as a writer, there's always this fear that somebody somewhere has already written this. I have nothing left to say. Um, and But he has this great section and he's talking about writing. Um, he says, you know, the the point of what we're about here is is to find what has been lost and found and lost and found again and again. And I think um, I found that to be really comforting as a writer. There's nothing new under the sun, right? And um, the, the point is not for me to come up with this new novel idea that no one has ever said or expressed or, or this feeling that no one has ever felt. But to, to think about what are these things that we continue to lose that we need to refine or maybe re-envision, recapture, and to start there. Um, I, I think it, it keeps it a lot more realistic about what we can do as artists, um, but also is really hopeful that there's, there's always going to be things to say, there's always going to be things to write, and looking back at those essential things that need to be regained um, is a really good starting point for the creative process. Yeah, good, good. Thank you, thank you. Um, so now we talked a little bit about, um, uh, let's see, let's see, what else is coming up for me? Um, <laughs> so let's see. Uh, so now we talked a little bit about the, the, in the theme of the show. Let me just uh, quickly do... Uh, a promo. So this is the uh, Radio Free Brooklyn, the Truth to Power show. We're here with Diana Groover, uh, author of Companions in the Darkness, um, and we're talking a little bit about how I think this 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 uh, piece also gets into how the personal is political and how you know how like the personal ha can be connect is connected to the whole and connected to all bodies. So anything we're experiencing in our body is connected to all bodies and and how. Um, you know, there's no like we think about, especially with people like who are, who are featured in the book, where they're uh, part of their community, their whole, they're they're very connected to their community, and how their experience, their personal experiences are very much reflections of that community, and how. Um, so tell us a little bit about your interpretation or how you would interpret uh, the personal's political and how um, kind of connecting it with the themes we've been discussing. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I think the word political has a negative spin on it, especially coming off of an election like we've just yeah. walked through. Yeah, totally, totally. But um, I think politics has to do with more than just political parties and elections, right? Politics, if we think about it in the sense of um, the parts of our life that impact the life and the opportunities and, and the well-being of other people, I think politics has to be personal. Um, you know, my personal story, my personal experience, my personal decisions will impact other people. Mm. Um, my story and what I do with it will impact other people. Um, and so I can choose to be a source of help or comfort or peace or whatever with my story or my decisions or my opportunities or not. Um, and so thinking about this book, um, you know, my personal story and experience with depression can have an impact on the opportunities and well-being and life of other people. And choosing to share a little bit of that and, and hoping that that can have a positive impact um, is, is a decision that I've made. And I, I think it's to sharing your own stories open, opens you up to a, a vulnerable place, but I think, I believe it's worthwhile. Um, in thinking about the lives and the people of this book, they did that too. They each in their own way and their own context chose to try to be a source of blessing and peace and help to other people, um, in the ways that they could yeah yeah thank you thank you and also it seems like uh discovering our truth uh, another theme of the show is discovering our truth uh, kind of as an essential truth as something that you know can't be refuted uh, helps empower us in our communities and that empowerment is so important because when we have kind of um opposing view of course everyone has opposing viewpoints but we have viewpoints that are oppressive or viewpoints that are our perspectives that are kind of pushing down people. We want to find the, the, the truth, that counter truth that can kind of help us survive and help us thrive even. Um, so talking a little bit about truth to power and, you know, even that sometimes has a spin that, uh, you know, everyone has a spin on things, but thinking about in terms of truth as empowerment. Um, if you talk a little bit about that, tell us your impressions and thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll just tie it into depression since yeah. we're talking about a book about depression. Yeah, of course, um, of course. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned this, but I, I think um, the truth that depression is not a sign of failure and that it doesn't mean that you can't leave some kind of an impact or legacy on the world. Um, I think that is really empowering. Um, when you're in such a, a, a place where you feel so worthless or feel so little hope, like we do when we're depressed. Just even the littlest seed of, of hope that that might not be the end of your story mm. can be life-saving for people, I think. Um, I think that we need to know that our pain and our struggle is not the end of our story and that there is something that can be bigger than those things. Um, I think that's part of what drove me to write this book and what I've benefited from the stories of the companions uh, uh, in the darkness that, um, you know, their, their life and their experience, their life of faith helped them to cope and, and gave them that hope. I think we all have our own sources of resilience to help us get through that. Um, but I, I think knowing that we can still leave an impact 
on the world, <laughs> even when we feel like we have nothing left to give, it is really important for us to be able to hold on to and be able to speak to each other whenever we have trouble believing it for ourselves. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And also, it seems like, uh, you know, some one of the perspectives I received from a, a teacher was that, um, you know, people who have depression or have a very keen uh, worldly intelligence, like they, they termed it like that as opposed to having a spiritual intelligence. But I think that the book kind of refutes that in the sense that they, these uh, companions and these people are people who had a, a very keen sense of spiritual intelligence, but they also suffered from this uh this thinking patterns or these thought patterns and getting to know how, you know, it's not a question of being more spiritual. It's a question of just, you know, allowing, because as the human experience, part of the human experience is this, is this kind of double-edged sword, you know? Um, and even uh, when we think about depression, depression and depressive illnesses, uh, nowadays we have more of an awareness towards like, you know, things like mania, things like psychosis and things like that, which is also dealt with in the book. Um, uh, you know, although the, obviously the the objective of the book is not to diagnose, it's more to just, uh, you know, explore the different related incidents. And one of the things that struck me was one of the moments with uh, Hannah Allen uh, when she's like smoking spiders and not to not to romanticize mental illness, but it's just interesting because it's like, you know, it's interesting to note because it's like, um, you know, these are the kinds of things we, we turn to when we become, yeah. these are kinds of, you know, we become so creative in our, in our kind of craziness or whatever, in our kind of, in our, yeah. in our, in our seek to, in our seek to self-destruction, we become yeah. so create, create, creative, you know? So, um, and how that creativity, it's unfortunate that creativity is being used in this, in this way. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, and how you kind of see their creativity, you see their creative genius in this, in these moments like this, you know, and how they applied it, you know, in a way that was destructive. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's, it, you mentioned her story. That was one of the details that stuck up out to me that kind of, uh, fascinated me about her. But as you said, it's, it's fascinating, but it's also really tragic because, yeah. As you said, that creativity she was twisting to try to take her own life, um, which is always a tragic thing. Yeah, yeah. So why don't we listen to another story? Unfortunately, the the last clip got a little cut off because I was no. uh, so it got a little cut off. Uh, it went a little dead, I think, for a little while. I'm not sure. I have to review the audio, but uh, we'll listen to another clip uh, from the book uh, "Commanders in the Darkness: uh, Seven States of Struggle, Depression, and Doubt." So yeah. I'll read a little bit from Martin Luther's story. He was a German Protestant reformer back in the 16th century. And his main theme of advice that I noticed was to flee solitude, which for us today in the midst of a pandemic, I know is very difficult. <laughs> um, but I think there are creative ways. Speaking of creativity, <laughs> yeah. there are some positive creative ways that we can find to be able to do this. I remember the ache of loneliness and the fear of my own thoughts during the worst of my depression in my college years. I felt cut off from everyone by a thick, insulating layer. Others' voices came as if from a distance, reflecting off the thick walls around my heart and mind. I was trapped in a cold, isolating fog. Some nights I would pick up my notebook and textbook, probably one of the thick volumes of Norton's literature anthology, and slowly climb the stairs, 
walk to my friend's apartment, not to talk, just to sit. I craved being in the presence of someone else who was living, breathing, warm, alive. People who cared about me were there, breathing the same air, loving me in the midst of my darkness, and that was enough to keep me going. At times it felt needy, even pathetic. Just please let me sit in your apartment while you're there. But I was unknowingly following one of Luther's oft-repeated pieces of advice for depression, flee solitude. In seeking out company, I was doing one of the best things I could. Luther would have encouraged me that this was fighting. We have several letters with Luther's guidance for how to survive depression. My favorite of these was written to a young man named Jerome Weller, who studied with Luther, lived in his house, and even tutored his children. Feeling depressed, Jerome feared he would give in to despair and perhaps even commit suicide. Luther wrote him with this advice. By all means, flee solitude, for the devil watches and waits for you most of all while you are alone. Therefore, Jerome, joke and play games with my wife and others. In this way, you will drive out your diabolical thoughts and take courage. This advice may not be easy to follow. It works against the natural pool of depression to isolate and withdraw. Solitude brought a strange sort of comfort when I was depressed. I didn't have to act normal, didn't have to summon the energy to engage, to make eye contact, to smile, to converse. I could simply be, could simply disappear. But Luther would have told me to fight against this inclination, to not only avoid solitude, but to flee it, to surround myself with friends, to do anything but remain alone. And as I said, I think following that advice is challenging in these days, um, but I can't help but think of Luther again. He says in another place that when he didn't have friends he could go be with, he just went out and spent time with his pigs. Um, at least there was some kind of warm-blooded animal there to uh, help pull him out of his own mind. So as I said, I think even if we can't be with people in person, I think there are some creative ways that we can try to follow that advice to not remain alone and, and allow our thoughts to just continue to fester. Yeah, yeah. and also I think that it's for this, at least for the sake of the show, we can uh, give advice to people about how they can be better companions to people, to others who are, when they notice they're suffering and how to, um, not just for themselves, but also healing other people in their yeah. communities that then, you know, fleeing to a community uh, or going to a community will not, um, you know, be more of a hindrance to people who are suffering. So if you could tell a little bit of your best advice, then we can share a little bit of some more advices to uh, people. I think that definitely from that passage, we can hear accepting people for who they are, you know, not kind of insisting that people smile, you know, these kinds of things, not insisting that, oh, you know, you should look cheerful or something, or you should be in a certain way is definitely advice. I think that is implicit in that passage um, that we should not force people to feel things they don't feel, but be accepting of their feelings. So is there anything else you, you derive from these, uh, these, these people that um, you think might, might translate into advice? For spiritual communities, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can't tell the stories of any of the people in this book without also telling the stories of the people who walked with them in the midst of it. 
um, there are beautiful stories of the ways that their friends or family members, um, loved ones, mentors were willing to keep company with them in the midst of the dark. I, I think walking with depression is painful. I think walking with someone who's walking with depression is is also painful in other ways. It, it, it can be a challenging thing to do. But as you said, I, I think um, being willing to just stay with people and offer people, um, we call it the ministry of presence, right? Just, just giving them your presence. You don't need to say the right things. Um, you don't need to come up with a way to fix them, but just staying with them. Um, not letting them be alone um, as they're able, maybe helping them to engage in something that will pull them from their thoughts, whether that be as simple as going for a walk or cooking a meal. They might not enjoy it the way that they once did. They, they probably will not. Um, but being there to offer some, some things to do together can be helpful. I'll also say helping somebody get treatment for depression is, is really important. Um, and I don't, I think that that's true for family members. I think uh, spiritual communities, knowing the resources of mental health services in your area can be really helpful for people in your community to help them get connected to a counselor, to encourage them to see their doctor and, and get treatment in that sense. Mm. I would also say to somebody who maybe has a loved one with depression that they're walking through it in a more intimate way. Don't try to do it alone. Um, depression is is a, a heavy thing. It's a hard thing. And it's not something that you need to, to do by yourself, um, just as your loved one can't do it by themselves. So surrounding yourself with friends who can encourage you as you're also trying to encourage someone else, maybe seeing a counselor yourself, could be a really helpful way for you to be able to continue to be present and, and loving and supportive through that difficult season. And, and I know in the pandemic, um, a lot of us are struggling with our mental health even more than normal. I, the last statistics I saw, depression was up by three or four times as much as it was last year. Um, the holidays are also a really difficult season. So be gentle with yourself. Um, if you're struggling, you're not the only one. And if you're not struggling, someone around you is. And so I think showing ourselves um, the grace to be okay with not being okay and extending that to others as well is a, a really helpful place to start. Yes, thank you, thank you. So this is the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, I have a couple um, things that I wanted to uh, announce. Um, if you live in New York City and want for either fun or exercise, here's a way to learn something about the city in which you're getting a workout. City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours designed with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in diversity and character of its neighborhoods, and these unique running tours are an opportunity to, to learn the history of the neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose some tours of 23 neighborhoods, including the East Village, the Airport Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information about the running tours and to see the list of neighborhoods and uh, full tour schedule, Please check out their website at cityrunningtours.com slash New York City. Um, so now, let's see. We have Giving Tuesday just passed. Um, December is uh, 
is or was Giving Tuesday. December 1st was, was Tuesday, Giving Tuesday. Uh, global generosity movement that unleashes the power of people and organizations to transform the communities and the world. At a time when we are experiencing the pandemic, generosity is what helps people of all uh, races and political views across the globe. Generosity gives everyone the power to make uh, positive change in the lives of others and the fundamental value anyone can act on. Uh, Ready for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to empower um, Brooklyn underserved community, local communities by providing active learning and media practices and apply their voices to global internet radio, uh, public art. We also support initiatives to support musicians and artists throughout difficult times and provide media literacy programs to those who need it most. And we desperately need your help during these difficult times for a monthly pledge or one-time donation. Allow us to continue to bring you um, community media and art. Please go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash so join and give whatever you can. Thank you. Um, so now, uh, let's see, any other, let's see, I think, and also just in general, uh, remind people that they can listen to the show on uh, the apps, the Radio for Brooklyn apps for iPhone or Android, and uh, and follow us on uh, Radio Brooklyn Dark Session newsletter. So as we start to wind down, we got like about 15 more minutes um, of the show. Um, also, some of the preemptive questions are about uh, failures and such, uh, successes and failures, uh, and how we can redefine. I guess part of your answer is about how we can redefine these things, and part of the book is about how we can redefine successes and failures uh, to think about it differently, and how kind of when we think about failures and 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 not meeting our objectives or not meeting things that we want, um, how we can kind of recontextualize that within the journey. So what are your impressions about how, you know, either the, the speakers or yourself have recontextualized failures and kind of how, you know, falling short can be part of the, can be a very uh, essential part of the process. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's a really interesting question. I don't know if you're into the Enneagram at all. Um, I'm an Enneagram one, which means I am oh, yeah. motivated by a desire to be perfect, yeah. um, which means that I need to pay attention to my failures because that's an important pushback against my own personality um, that would make me not desiring to fail at anything. So I love that you asked that question. Because um, I think you're right. I think there's a great opportunity in failure to learn and to grow um, related to depression and, and this book and and just my own times of meeting with other people. Although I can't point to one specific catastrophic moment that this happened. I think, I think there are always times where you realize, oh, I, I didn't articulate myself quite in the way that I wanted to or... I should have just kept my mouth shut and not said that thing to that person. It would have been better for me to just sit with them in silence. That would have been a greater source of comfort. And I think that all of those little failures along the way, I hope, are shaping me into a better writer and a better people helper to just learn um, from my mistakes in those ways. I think it's also a question of not only facing our own failure, but even trying to understand what is and isn't a failure. Um, yeah. I, I think in de this, the, the season of depression, I think there are a lot of things that we would like to do or that normally we might be able to do that we can't because depression 
is sapping our energy or our ability to concentrate or our creativity or whatever the case might be. And so I think even just understanding that our inability to do something the way that we would have wanted to in a season where maybe we're in a better mental health space doesn't mean we're failing. That That's not a failure. And so understanding that that's not a failure, I think, takes some of the load of guilt off of us or shame off of us and can just accept where we are. You know, we might not be running at 100 um, percent. And I don't think you have to be depressed to say I'm not running at 100 percent. I know talking to a lot of people right now, um, we have pandemic brain and it's affecting um, our experience with the world and our productivity. And that's not a failure. That's just where we are. Um, and I think that, that we can find a lot of, of just freedom and, and take off a load we don't need to carry to just accept that as a part of our reality right now. Yeah, and also I would say that, um, you know, one of the foundational kind of change or shifts that I had was when I did some improvisational comedy. And it's like that experience of thinking about mistakes as pattern building and in, in, in kind of the experience of doing these kind of sketches, it's like, you know, you throw out something out that doesn't match. And then the, your teammates always build that into the pattern. I thought that was a very interesting experience that we kind of remember that, you know, if we're supportive of each other. And when we're supportive of each other, um, we can kind of create, t turn mistakes into gold. You know, we can turn yeah. the mistakes into something that triggers something that is unexpected. And... Um, something that's outside of what our pre preconceived notions are about how things should be going. Like yeah. we have our own ideas about how um, life should be going, how the, the universe should be operating and acknowledging that we, well, we don't know. And then when we, when we acknowledge that, then we go into the territory of like, I'm open to many different experiences and many different interpretations. And then even mistakes can really open up an insight into the, the the workings of the universe and all this kind of thing. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like other people's mistakes, our own mistakes can really um, be an eye-opener, you know? So that's why I think it's a very important to recontextualize. I think your answer also kind of, you know, led me a lot down that path that I was like, oh, you know, we can recontextualize these failures as being just part of the patterns that we yeah. experience in life. Yeah, yeah. What are yeah. your thoughts on that? Yeah. I remember, and I wish now I could remember who it was. Maybe some of your listeners would know. It. She was a, um, a a famous CEO, and she was talking about part of what led to her success. And she said that um, one of the things that has really helped her is every night around the dinner table, her dad, uh, the, the topic of conversation would be, what have you failed at today? Mm. And if they didn't have an answer, they were kind of chastised for it because... Yeah not having something that you could share that you failed at meant that you hadn't tried something new yet you hadn't yeah. taken a risk and she was expressing how much that has shaped her over the years and um, again as i said my personality that's a lesson that i need to hear um that having things that i can say oh yeah i, I tried that and i failed um is a good sign of of my own growth and my own desire to keep learning and growing and stretching myself. And I'll be the first to admit that I um, sometimes fail at not failing enough <laughs> just because I'm, I'm, it's hard to take risks. Yeah, totally, totally. 
And uh, one thing I was thinking of, um, yeah, it's like about kind of as you're saying, it's like when we try hard, when we try to do something different, then it's, we set ourselves, we set a goal that's always a little bit higher than what we're capable of doing, and we'll always be experiencing that falling short, that yeah. uh, that kind of that stumbling or that that growth spurts. Um, so the final question I think I'll ask you as, as I want you to uh, address is like uh, some of the runner ups, runner ups in the book, like people who almost made the book, but um, but didn't, uh, you know, kind of things, some some honorable mentions. If you have any honorable mentions of people who you think you'd like to uh, talk a little bit about uh, that that didn't make the seven, but um, were very interesting that you found very insightful. Yeah. The one that I want to research more and haven't been able to yet is uh, Kierkegaard, the famous philosopher. He struggled deeply with depression. Um, he had a lot to say about it. As I said, I've not been able to research him much yet myself. It's a little intimidating to deep dive into his philosophy because some of it's pretty heavy lifting. Yeah. Um, one, though, I have been reading about is Abraham Lincoln. Uh, there's a great book. Uh, I think it's called Lincoln's Melancholy. That's in a very similar spirit to my book, exploring his own uh, struggle with depression and how it shaped him and how it shaped him as a leader. Uh, if there's any history buffs out there, I definitely encourage you to read it. I can't think of the author's name right now off the top of my head. But I think, again, thinking of somebody that has had an impact on our country and a lot of people respect um, to know that he struggled with depression deeply and his friends put him on suicide watch and and the fact that that experience of suffering really shaped him in a positive way um, is is a really fascinating thing to read. I think with any of these stories to hear something that sounds so familiar and so modern is always a little shocking and yet also a little encouraging. That it's not like there's something strange happening to us in the 21st century. Uh, this has been going on for a while. Um, another one who I think is a little, she was a little too recent for me to want to include in the book is the poet Jane Kenyon. I don't know if anyone's heard of her. She has, her poetry is beautiful. Um, but she has one poem in particular called Having It Out With Melancholy. That's about her just wrestling through her own experience with depression and being put on medication and, and trying to struggle towards um, light and life. Um, there's a, a line in there that she says that depression had ruined her manners against God, which is a line that for some reason has always just really stuck out to me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Lincoln's melancholy, how depression challenged a president and fueled his greatness by Joshua Wolf skank skank. S H E N K. Uh, so that's the author just to get for listeners to that's easy to Google or whatever. But, um, so yeah, yeah. So as we like the final question, I guess I'll ask you is, um, and now since we have like about a few more minutes, I can always just, uh, talk a little bit in the last few minutes, but, um, uh, what, what, what are you listening to or watching during the pandemic? Are you, are you binging anything? Are you watching anything that, that you'd like to plug or have you had a good experience with? Aren't we all binging yeah, something exactly, these exactly. days? <laughs> yeah. uh, well, circling back to the whole idea of humor, I think some of the most difficult seasons of um, 
our, our life, my husband and I, we've watched the shows that make us laugh because you need some laughter in your life. So at some point we started watching um, the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which we've never seen before and um, has been recommended to me in the past. So that is providing some laughter here and there. I also am a big fan of The Great British Bake Off, which with all of us being stuck at home always inspires my own cooking and baking desires. So, <laughs> so we just finished um, the newest season of that. Um, yeah, I don't know that it's anything, you know, high culture, but sometimes you just need things that allow you to escape a little bit. Yeah, totally, totally. I've been watching uh, The Good Place. I'm almost done with it. So that's okay. also a show that has a little bit of like uh, the influence of these kinds of themes of like it's about the afterlife. So uh, these four characters find themselves uh, in this uh, afterlife and kind of exploring the nuances of the, the if you call it the bureaucracy of the afterlife. <laughs> uh, it's very interesting. It's kind of humorous, poking fun at kind of bureaucracy and the idea of like, middle managers and all this kind of thing, which is something I always wanted to explore in my own writing. So like exploring the, the conflict between kind of like uh, uh, red tape and conflict and, and, and bureaucracy and these high spiritual matters and how they can kind of, you know, conflate or, or you know, in any organization, how they can, you know, the management, the day-to-day -day management is something that's one thing. And then the ideals or the ideas behind it is almost like another thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one I've not watched yet. Yeah, it's good, good, definitely worth uh, checking out. Um, so yeah, so uh, uh, we have about five minutes. I can also play a song to end us with. If you'd like to suggest a song, I can pull up a song from uh, Apple iTunes or Apple uh, Music. Um, do you have any songs that you like to shout out? Wow, now you're really putting me on the spot. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know, VJ. I'm yeah, this. Pick you, one yeah, pick one. <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. Uh, let's see. Um, this one, let's see. Let me see. Uh, then, meanwhile, you could uh, tell us a little bit about where where we can find you while I'm looking for something. Where we can uh, buy the book or find out more information. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you can find me uh, on my website, dianagroover.com. Yeah. And I blog there at least once or twice a month. Um, my book, Companions in the Darkness, you can find it wherever books are sold. It's on Amazon. You can find it at my publisher's website. That's InterVarsity Press. Um, I'd also encourage you to support your local independent bookstore. They can usually order pretty much anything. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Diana Groover and on Facebook at Diana Groover Writer. All right, great. Thank you, thank you. Uh, this is the Truth to Power Show on Radio for Brooklyn. We air every Monday at 8 a.m. Uh, rebroadcast right now is Thursday at 9 a.m. Although, please check the schedule at readyforbrooklyn.org slash to power to confirm that that's subject to change the rebroadcast. So we'll go out with uh, The Other Side of the Wall by Bruce, which is a very interesting song because it has to do a lot with... Um, as someone, I, I discovered the song through Pandora, and then it has a lot to do with kind of uh, emotions of, of the people and all that kind of thing. You'll listen to it anyway. And then uh, thank you so much, Diana. Thank, thank you. you. It's been so good to be with you. Thank you.
Side of me, for me. 